You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt of Vinnie Paz from the song Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBneutral, and you can check out the website YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find links to all the back episodes. You'll find links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece published at thehill.com. This is written by Daniel DeVise. One young adult in 20 is now non-binary or transgender. Communities that society barely recognized and seldom counted until a few years ago. Those populations are not new. Only recently, though, have survey takers thought to ask people about gender identity, invoking terminology that did not exist for prior generations. The word non-binary did not appear in the New York Times until 2014. The rising visibility of non-binary and transgender people reflects the nation's growing acceptance of gender fluidity, especially among the young. One landmark study found 1.2 million non-binary people in the 18 to 60 age group. Of that total, three-quarters were under 30, which suggests Generation Z has explored gender identity to an extent that older Americans have not. And this isn't a a terrible surprise. Um, While these feelings have always been there among certain numbers of folks in the population. The language and the words, and especially the openness and the visibility, were not there 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when most of the uh, the older folks out there now were growing up. Quote, We have a world in which we are finally counting these groups, said Kay Simon, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, who studies the experiences of queer youth and their families. You can't identify as something if you don't know what the word is. Simon grew up in Florida and Texas. From a very young age, I kind of realized I was gay, they said. At the time, I probably could have told you that I felt different about my gender, but I didn't have a word for it. The word was non-binary, denoting a person who identifies with neither the male nor female gender. Simon remembers when the academic community introduced he, she, they pronouns on faculty pages and email salutations during their grad school years. Even now, teaching about sexuality and gender identity in the presumptively safe space of a college campus, Simon must decide kind of regularly whether to correct someone who refers to them with a wrong pronoun. I've had students misgender me, they said, and it becomes this joke of A, you're referring to your professor wrong, and B, you didn't read the syllabus. So we have two problems. The population of young non-binary and transgender people is clearly large and probably growing. A 2022 report from the Williams Institute, a research center at the University of California, Los Angeles, estimates that 1.3% of adults age 18 to 24 and 1.4% of 13 to 17-year-olds are transgender, with a gender identity different than one assigned at birth. Teens and young adults are much more likely to be transgender than older adults. Five years earlier, in a 2017 report, the Williams Institute had found roughly half as many young transgender people. But the earlier analysis used different methods and drew on comparatively sparse data, so it's hard to know how much of the increase is real. 
Is the transgender population exploding, or are researchers simply counting better? That is a common quandary, researchers say, in studies of the non-binary and transgender communities. Quote, I would argue, actually, it is not an increase, said Ross Toomey, a professor of family studies and human development at the University of Arizona. We are seeing the numbers of people disclosing non-binary and trans identity on a survey because we are asking more people in more inclusive ways about their gender. Perhaps the most expansive tally to date of transgender and non-binary people comes from the Pew Research Center. In a 2022 survey, Pew found that 1.6% of U.S. adults reported a gender different from the one assigned to them at birth. Pew, too, found that the non-binary and transgender populations skewed young. 3% of adults age 18 to 29 said they were non-binary, and 2% said they were transgender. In the 50-plus population, by contrast, only 0.3% of respondents identified themselves as transgender or non-binary. Quote, I think that Gen Z individuals are not alone in this, but they are kind of leading the charge, said Rachel Farr, an associate professor of developmental psychology at the University of Kentucky. Today's young adults have grown up in a society that is gradually recognizing the rights of the LGBTQ community. In 2010, the Senate voted to repeal the Clinton era, don't ask, don't tell policy, allowing LGBTQ people to serve openly in the military. And I don't want to just gloss over that because to an enormous extent in, in the political system in the United States, the LGBTQ community looks to the Democratic Party as the party that is, quote unquote, on our side. Some of these terrible laws that were passed against us were passed in the Bill Clinton administration. Democrats put these laws into place. This one that the, the story just mentioned, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, related to the military. And separately, the Defense of Marriage Act, which just had to be repealed in the because of the risk of the Supreme Court turning back the clock on marriage equality for, uh, for gay and lesbian individuals. So it's, it's good and fine to believe that the Democrats are more on your side than the Republicans. Um, that is factual and that is the reality. But the Democrats have not gone to bat for your rights in a consistent way, ever. Back to the piece. In 2015, the Supreme Court recognized a legal right for same-sex couples to marry. Quote, It's not that there are more people. It's that there are more people who are open and who are out, said Shoshana Goldberg, Director of Public Education and Research at Human Rights Campaign, the LGBTQ rights group. The reality is that when you talk to the average person on the street, they're going to be more accepting and more affirming than they've ever been. And while I think that is true when you're talking about the average person, I think in general things have moved in a, in a much better direction um, as far as people being accepting and affirming of LGBTQ uh, individuals and their human rights. But this, this um, additional exposure, this additional visibility also comes with this more vocal, more virulent minority of folks who oppose uh, right, human rights for LGBTQ folks and oppose LGBTQ folks even existing. We're going to talk more about them in a couple other stories. The share of American adults who identify as queer doubled from 2012 to 2021, according to a relatively long-running Gallup poll. Within Generation Z, polling suggests the LGBTQ population doubled in just four years, from 10.5% in 2017 to 20.8% in 2021. Bisexuals, and especially bisexual women, populate the majority of the Gen Z queer community, according to research from Gallup and others. Transgender and non-binary people constitute a smaller but significant share. 
Researchers say social media played a defining role in helping transgender and non-binary young people define themselves. Landon Ritchie grew up in Texas and came out as transgender at age 11. But since I was two, he said, really, as early as I could think and express myself with some sort of agency, I understood that I did not fit into that role that I was assigned as a girl. Richie couldn't fully process his identity until around age 10, when he gained larger access to the internet and saw people who were transgender and who talked about their experiences, he said. And I was able to see myself reflected in their stories and their experiences. Now that the transgender and non-binary communities have been identified and counted, researchers say, they need society's support. Both groups face a heightened risk of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in both childhood and adulthood, the UCLA study found. Depression and suicidal ideation are alarmingly common. Transgender and non-binary people often feel under attack, and with good reason. Research shows queer people face a heightened risk of being victims of violent crime. Transgender and non-binary individuals also face higher rates of workplace harassment and discrimination. The communities also face legislative attack. GLAD, an LGBTQ media advocacy group, tracked more than 300 anti-LGBTQ bills across the nation in 2022, many of them targeting transgender persons by seeking to bar them from equal access to sports, restrooms, or health care. Quote, Almost for as long as I've been out, there's been a target placed by the Texas legislature on my back, said Richie, who has been politically active in his state for several years. Some faith-based and socially conservative groups have argued that influential Instagram posters and overzealous educators seed gender confusion in young people. Advocates for the queer community counter that social media and progressive curricula help transgender and non-binary people discover their identities, rather than create them. Friends and loved ones can play a crucial role, researchers say, simply by honoring the name and pronoun requested by a transgender or non-binary person. I think the first thing is just to accept them and listen to them, said Allison Eliscu, M.D., medical director of the Adolescent LGBTQ Care Program at Stony Brook Medicine in Stony Brook, New York. If you make a mistake, because we all do, apologize, say it correctly, and then try to do better. So that was a good story on some uh, studies and surveys showing the number of folks who identify in these ways. And pointing that the number is growing, but also pointing that the number is quite small, especially when you look at the non-binary and transgender communities uh, that specifically themselves. You're talking about under 2% of um, folks out there that identify in these ways, which I want you to keep in mind as we talk about some of these other stories, because uh, we're going to talk about some of the folks who uh, are part of that aggressive backlash against uh, specifically transgender and non-binary folks and how they they inflate um, these potential problems, but very, very small potential problems that could be mostly easily worked through in a reasonable manner. And they conflate them into these... Um, risks that that folks in society are at risk from transgender or non-binary individuals and it, it just doesn't pan out in reality first because the size of the communities are so small and second because the size of the issues that they talk about from individuals in those communities are even smaller you're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a group of people that may do anything remotely related to the kind of uh, problems that these folks talk about and call out and think they are trying to solve via legislation. Legislation that keeps trans girls out of girls' sports when trans girls are, are very, very few. In some states trying to pass these laws or who have passed these laws, they're talking about four or five individuals in the entire state who are 
out in trans and want to participate in the sports. So their nearly non-existent problems are being inflated and promoted and fear-mongered uh, about in order to gain political points. It's that's it, all it is. It's it's why you fear-monger. It's why you you focus on specific quote-unquote hot-button issues. Um, it is part of the propaganda to get people to believe in in things in specific ways and to become part of your community, part of your effort to do whatever it is you want to do. And, and these arguments are unfortunately very successful. And the Republican Party and other individuals, portions of the Republican Party, have wielded and used these arguments uh, to, to strong effect to raise the ire of the public and to get those folks that who, who become angered by these topics and issues. And because of the way they're discussed and the way they're presented, um, those folks gravitate towards the extreme end of the Republican Party. Next up is a piece published at extramagazine.com. This written by Jude Ellison S. Doyle. When I first started asking about the connection between anti-trans politics and the American right wing, my concerns were simple. I'd covered abortion for several years and some of the tactics being used by organized transphobes, noisy protests outside clinics or doxing and harassing doctors were similar enough to the pro-life movements that I expected some groups were working together. I was right. There was a connection which I've covered already for Extra and other outlets, and there are links in this story to those other stories. What I did not expect was that asking researchers to situate anti-trans activists in the context of the broader right would turn out to be one of the scariest questions I'd ever ask. Every researcher I spoke to told me that the situation on the ground was far worse than I thought. Anti-trans activists had not hitched their wagon to the American right wing, the far right was using transphobia to advance their larger agenda, and that agenda was both more violent and a lot more successful than I knew. What follows is an attempt to summarize that agenda, although the full picture, comprised as it is of activist splinter groups, bizarre conspiracy theories, social media hate campaigns, and titanic global funding initiatives, is both too complex and too weird to ever fully summarize. It's a story in which, quote, eco-fascists infiltrating lesbian folk festivals bump up against anti-Semitic conspiracy bloggers and Vladimir Putin's global dark money operations. Strange enough that it's hard to take seriously, but very serious and increasingly dangerous to us all. This is how trans-eliminationist thought became mainstream politics and it has grave implications not just for trans people, but for democracy itself. Thus far, I've avoided using the fatal acronym TERF, or Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist. The reason is that TERF no longer means the same thing it did 20 or even 10 years ago. It still indicates a person, probably a white cis woman, whose politics are defined by obsessive transphobia, but the content of that hatred is very different now. The original TERFs hailed from a specific strain of trans-hostile radical feminism, the kind espoused by certain feminist authors from the 1970s and 80s, like Janice Raymond, whose 1979 book, The Transsexual Empire, notoriously called for, quote, morally mandating trans people out of existence. Their political battles were focused on things like condemning strap-ons as a symbol of male dominance or keeping trans women out of the lesbian folk festival, Mitchfest. They were widely mocked, highly unpopular, and even at their peak in the 1980s, exercised almost no political power. So how did TERFs become a global threat? The answer, according to the researcher Kai Shevers, is that they're not the same people. 
In the mid-2010s, a small group of activists with fascist sympathies, most of them hailing from the environmentalist group Deep Green Resistance, or DGR, infiltrated the older movement and dragged it to the right over the objections of some members. Quote, I was hanging out with these transphobic radical feminists when the right-wing creep happened, Shevers says. I know that there's a whole lot of them that actually feel completely fucked over. Shevers researches TERFs because she used to be one. She's written extensively about being sucked into a cult-like detransition movement, which convinced young transmasculine people that their dysphoria was caused by misogyny and could only be cured by radical feminism. She has been my most patient guide through the world of organized transphobia, having previously spoken to me about the rise of anti-trans activism targeting doctors and gender clinics. Every conversation is a whirlwind of names, dates, times, and bizarre blog posts from turf havens, illuminating the underbelly of an obsessive and increasingly dangerous movement. Turfs were always, quote, terrible people, Shevers told me, but the groups she first encountered did have some familiarity with feminist thought, and most thought of themselves as progressive or leftist. Then came DGR, with a whole different set of prior assumptions. DGR members were what Shevers calls eco-fascists. They argued for violent action that would cause a mass die-off of humanity in order to save the environment. They initially recruited from anarchist and environmental groups, according to a timeline put together by researcher Lee Leviel. DGR fractured in 2012 due to a series of controversies involving the transphobia of its founders, Lear Keith, and Derek Jensen. In 2013, Earth First joined with DGR co-founder Eric McBay in denouncing them. It was also in 2013 that Keith founded the radical feminist organization Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF. Lear Keith began to turn her attention more towards old-school turfs, Shevers says. She had people at the last Mitch Fest trying to recruit people. Wolf had their own little camp set up, so they started recruiting among transphobic feminists and lesbians, and then once Trump got elected, and the Christian right and all these other groups got more powerful and more bold, that's when they started making the right-wing alliances. After Donald Trump's election, Wolf pivoted hard to the right. Co-founder Kara Dansky appeared on Tucker Carlson tonight to rail against the trans agenda, and in 2017, the organization filed a joint amicus brief with the Conservative Family Policy Alliance to, quote, oppose the effort to open girls' locker rooms and showers to boys who say they identify as girls, and vice versa. These new alliances effectively brought the TERFs into the American right wing. It also brought them into power. When you look at who's calling themselves a GC feminist, GC for gender critical, these days, their version of radical feminism is Wolf's, Shever says. They're not really reading a lot of Janice Raymond. One need not weep for the original flavor turfs, whose intentions towards trans women in particular were always genocidal. Raymond explicitly said that her goal was for trans people to no longer exist. Yet in 1979, that hatred was much less potent than it is today. Turfism was one pocket of a relatively powerless movement which did not have the reach nor backing of the broader right wing. Yet, as a pre-existing hate group on the left, TERFs were incredibly easy for fascists to infiltrate and absorb. A 2020 article from Radix Journal, a far-right publication founded by the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer, lays out a strategy for doing just that. In the article entitled, the TERF to Dissident Right Pipeline, author Kat S. notes that TERF's insistence on, quote, biological sex as an immutable binary, all men depraved and violent, all women fragile victims, may make it easier to convince them of other biological hierarchies. Their insistence on seeing trans women as violent men in particular can be weaponized against men of color and turned into overt white supremacy. Quote, it doesn't take any thinking woman long to see exactly which men are committing violent crime and the majority of partner violence and race realism is a natural next step. 
Ultimately, the article reasons it should be easy to convince TERFs that supporting the rights of biological women means rejecting, quote, the mid to late 20th century Jewish-led feminist theory, particularly the corporate slavery of work outside the home in favor of accepting their biologically ordained role as wives and mothers. Quote, a pro-family, pro-natalist movement requires some degree of female participation, Kat S. writes, and reframing the patriarchy paradigm is essential. Ultimately, TERFs must be led to see patriarchy as, quote, a system where men's urges and strengths are allowed to flourish and channeled into healthy outlets, and women are protected and respected for their material reality and the gifts our unique biology affords. It's a grim irony that by insisting on a feminism without any trans women in it, TERFs have wound up constructing the tool by which fascists aim to destroy feminism altogether. Still, it's not news that online Nazis have crazy ideas. Could this actually work? To talk about that, we have to pull back and look at the global picture. Yeah, it is, it is pretty incredible how that is described, how that pathway is described. And we know from where we are now that at least for some segment of those initial groups, it has been successful. TERFs and organized anti-trans groups are only one part of the global right-wing struggle against so-called gender ideology. Roughly the confluence of abortion rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ plus rights with trans people seeming to inspire particular fury. That struggle is well-organized, well-funded, and global. A 2021 report from the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights, EPF, found that between 2009 and 2018, Europe had received 707.2 million U.S. dollars in anti-gender funding. Again, this comprises initiatives against abortion and LGBTQ2S plus rights more broadly, as well as anti-trans funding to the opponents of gender ideology. They're all the same thing. Outside of Europe itself, there were two countries pouring money into the campaign, the United States and Russia. American anti-gender funding comes largely from the Christian right. The EPF report lists donors like the Heritage Foundation, the American Center for Law and Justice, and the Alliance Defending Freedom, who are also highly active in anti-abortion and anti-trans politics at home. The Alliance Defending Freedom, for instance, has been credited with creating the legislative templates to inundate U.S. state legislatures with a barrage of transphobic sports bans. Russian involvement is harder to figure out, not least because that money is often run through laundromats intended to disguise its associations. The EPF argues that for Putin, anti-LGBTQ plus measures are not only desirable in themselves, Russia's treatment of queers is famously horrific, but also as a means to destabilize the globe. Specifically, Russia has a habit of boosting far-right populist political parties with an explicitly disruptive agenda. If otherwise functioning democracies can be torn apart over civil rights, that creates chaos, which ultimately benefits Russia. Certainly, the United States was weakened by the Trump years, arguably the most successful example of this strategy. Trying to follow these connections lands you in a human centipede chain, wherein Russian oligarchs dump dark money into U.S. evangelical think tanks, and the evangelicals send that money back over the Atlantic to fund TERFs. A law banning teachers from mentioning homosexuality in the classroom appears first in Hungary, then in Florida. Youth transition is banned in the UK, then restored, and then banned in Idaho. Vladimir Putin defends his invasion of the Ukraine, comparing the cancellation of J.K. Rowling to that of Russia. The same regressive ideas swirl back and forth between continents like ocean currents, and with or without conscious coordination, we all end up living in the same mess. Even the most extreme and implausible right-wing ideas have reach and institutional backing they might not otherwise have had, and a global slide into fascism goes from unthinkable to likely. This is where things get weird. The Deep Green Resistance member, 
who's had the biggest influence on the gender critical movement is a woman named Jennifer Billick, whose author biography calls her and quote, investigative journalist, artist, and concerned citizen, read blogger, and whose 2018 article for The Federalist, Who Are the Rich White Men Institutionalizing Transgender Ideology, tilted organized transphobia firmly into the realm of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. In that article, Billick puts forth the basics of her staggeringly bizarre worldview, a cabal of transhumanist billionaires Wealthy individuals supposedly devoted to helping humanity transcend its status as an organic species, like hedge fund tycoon George Soros, philanthropists Warren and Peter Buffett, and wealthy trans women Martine Rothblatt and Jennifer Pritzker. Yes, this paragraph gets crazier as you go. Has infiltrated the gay community and taken over the medical industrial complex, creating a predatory gender industry that convinces cis people they need to transition with the ultimate goal of normalizing body dissociation and extreme body modifications, putting Google chips in our heads and, I swear to God, enslaving the human race by merging man with machine. Billick's theories inspire mockery whenever someone coughs them up on social media, and they should. They're incredibly silly. But the trope of a sinister, moneyed elite plotting the destruction of humanity from the shadows is a familiar one from Nazi propaganda. Nearly all of the billionaires on Billick's list are, as Shevers points out, Jewish, trans-feminine, or gay. One thing that is crucial to understand about the far right, the extreme right, the Nazi guys, is that the way that they obsessively see absolutely fucking everything as a Jewish plot says author and hate researcher Talia Lavin, author of Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. And the existence of trans people is a huge one. Lavin cites the 1933 burning of Magnus Hirschfeld's archives. Hirschfeld, a German-Jewish doctor, was a groundbreaking and remarkably sympathetic researcher of transgender identity. His was the first clinic in the world to provide gender-affirming surgery. Then the Nazis burned his work, leaving a hole in history. To trans people, this looks like proof of erasure. But to a Nazi, Lavin says, it means something different. The presence of a Jewish doctor indicates that, quote, the existence of trans people was invented by people like Hirschfeld in order to undermine white masculinity and destroy the white family. I spoke to researchers in multiple countries for this piece, and all of them agreed that anti-trans activists were becoming increasingly comfortable with presenting their arguments in a white supremacist framework, presenting transition care as an attack on white fertility and white birth rates specifically. Sometimes this is subtle. Irreversible Damage, a 2020 book in which author Abigail Schreier portrays youth transition as an imminent threat to the fertility of, quote, our daughters infamously uses a cover illustration of a young white girl with her uterus scooped out of her body. At the extremes, things get more overt. Alex Aaron, the gender mapper organizer who has led the charge against Planned Parenthood as the apex of the trans lobby, also insists transition is only a threat to white children. Quote, Black youth are not transitioning, she writes. This obsessive focus on white fertility is of a piece with fascist propaganda about being overrun or replaced by people of color. Quote, there is a growing body of propaganda about white genocide, says Mallory Moore of the UK-based Trans Safety Network. We queer and trans people, and feminists for that matter, are refusing to do our national duty to breed. Chevers says that the conspiratorial thinking that dominates turf circles easily extends to incorporate other civil rights movements. Whereas trans people might be framed as a plan to weaken the white race through sexual degeneracy, movements like Black Lives Matter are suspected of being unwitting tools of the trans. They're talking about Black Lives Matter being co-opted by the trans lobby, she says. Again, it's very similar to Nazi propaganda. This Jewish elite has captured this black civil rights movement, and it's actually just an attack on white people. At this point, transphobia no longer seems like an adequate description of the problem. Transphobia implies hating trans people. 
believing that the existence of trans people is a Jewish plot to destroy the white race by lowering white assigned female at birth people's fertility is to be crude a whole new level of fucked up. Yet these ideas are reaching the mainstream, laundered through a sympathetic commentariat that scrubs off the far-right associations. For instance, as researcher Krista Peterson has documented, Helen Joyce's recent book, Trans, repeats Billick's Jewish billionaire's theory without citing her by name. Joyce was then reviewed by anti-trans commentator Jesse Single in the New York Times, and Single, while calling Joyce's book, quote, an intelligent, thorough rejoinder to an idea that has swept across much of the liberal world seemingly overnight, neglected to mention Jewish billionaires at all. Dig two inches down, and you'll find the Nazis. But on the surface, it looks like reasonable, quote, debate. It's a debate that trans people are losing, which brings us to the grimmest part of all of this, how fascist plans for eliminating trans people have become part of the American mainstream. It's no coincidence that much of this story revolves around the election of Donald Trump. The Trump administration emboldened fascists and far-right groups across the board, and it also brought them closer to mainstream political power than ever before. Witness the growing number of Nazis and QAnon conspiracy theorists in American legislatures. The far-right takeover of the Republican Party has not been painless. Hashtag never Trump conservatives feel that overt white supremacists make them look bad. And hate group members think that moderate conservatives are sellouts. Still, transphobia has provided a point of penetration where the far-right and mainstream conservatives are united. Rhetoric that was once the exclusive province of the far-right has come to dominate mainstream U.S. debates around anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ2S plus legislation. Witness how fertility rates and questions of sterilizing children come to dominate any discussions of youth transition. In Florida, the state's notorious Don't Say Gay bill was framed by Governor Ron DeSantis' spokesperson as an anti-grooming bill, and all opponents were cast as pedophiles. Quote, When they say pedophile, they mean someone who shouldn't be allowed to live, Lavin says. The quote-unquote deep state of QAnon is engaged in pedophilia. The Democratic Party is engaged in mass pedophilia. The default rhetorical move for the far right is everyone is a pedophile and pedophiles should be killed. Slowly but surely, the idea that trans people are inherently a predatory threat to white children gains traction, and the will to dispose of the threat follows. That's what I mean when I say annihilatory rhetoric, Lavin says. Like, this is to protect parents and children, as if queer people, trans people, aren't parents and children. They fall outside the remit of the Volk. Here is where I pull back, dizzied, and admit something that sounds paranoid even as I say it. This agenda is clearly already genocidal where trans people are concerned, but it also seems likely to escalate and find new targets. Anti-gender activism already includes attacks on abortion, women's rights, and the rights of cis queer people, all of which are being rolled back in the United States. The seething hatred of non-white and Jewish people, which provides the subtext for these movements, must sooner or later become their text. I'm frightened for myself, but I'm more frightened because the longer I look at this, the more I concur with the gender theorist Judith Butler that trans people might not be the point of anti-trans fascism at all. We are simply the most popular means by which fascists, quote, concoct a world of multiple imminent threats to make the case for authoritarian rule and censorship. I keep going back to my conversation with Lavin about the Hirschfeld archives. Burning them was one of the first things the Nazis did, but it certainly isn't what we remember them for. The fact that trans people make an easy first target doesn't mean we will be the last or even the most important ones. The longer I look at all this, the more information I assemble, the more my mind drifts back to that long-ago fire. The thing is, fire always spreads. Look around you and see what's already burning.
And next up is a piece published at lemkininstitute.com. This is a statement on the genocidal nature of the gender-critical movement's ideology and practice. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention voices its concern over the growing number of laws introduced in the United States that target transgender individuals and the transgender community. Anti-trans hostility in the U.S. has become a staple of the Republican Party's election strategy and is clearly being used to stoke voters' fears of a changing world by raising the specter of a malevolent polluting force tied to liberalism, cosmopolitanism, and democracy. The Lemkin Institute believes that the so-called gender-critical movement that is behind these laws is a fascist movement furthering a specifically genocidal ideology that seeks the complete eradication of trans identity from the world. Genocidal ideologies are ideologies that deny or seek to erase the existence of a specific group because of the supposed threat it poses to the holders of the ideology. The gender-critical movement simultaneously denies that transgender identity is real and seeks to eradicate it completely from society. Many gender-critical ideologues identify themselves as feminists and believe themselves to be protecting women from men. They accuse transgender women of being stealth men and of transgender men of being self-hating women. The movement, a centerpiece of right-wing ascendancy in the Western world, calls for discrimination against and harassment of transgender individuals and the transgender community through laws and policies that criminalize trans identity and trans life. The Lemkin Institute is alarmed by the growing number of attempts in the Western world to enact policies and spread prejudice that threaten the well-being and even the existence of transgender people. The gender-critical movement is a loose international affiliation of people and groups who promote far-right ideas that have gained a degree of centrist respectability through their purported defense of women. The movement alleges that people cannot determine their own sex or gender, and that the genitalia observed by doctors at birth are the final determinants of biological sex, as well as the permanent markers of gender belonging. Focusing primarily on the imagined threat posed by transgender women, gender-critical ideologues believe that transgender women are in fact men who are seeking to dominate cisgender women, women whose sense of self corresponds with their birth sex, by impersonating them and thereby gaining access to women's bathrooms, women's locker rooms, women's sports teams, and other women's spaces. They routinely accuse transgender people of being mentally ill and believe that the parents, family members, and medical professionals who support transgender people are committing morally reprehensible acts against the transgender individuals by nurturing their, quote, illness and against society at large by permitting dangerous people and ideas to take root. The ideological constructions of transgender women promoted by gender-critical ideologues are particularly genocidal. They share many features in common with other, better-known, genocidal ideologies. Transgender women are represented as stealth border-crossers who seek to defile the purity of cisgender women, much as Tutsi women were viewed in Hutu power ideology, and Jewish men in Nazi anti-Semitism. Trans people in general are framed as figures that threaten the wholeness of the patriarchal nuclear family, as well as the strength and vitality of national communities, much in the way that ethnic and national targets of genocide are viewed as cosmic enemies of the perpetrator group. Like the religious targets of genocidal violence, trans people are often described as somehow polluted, sinful, or against God. They are blamed for a host of social problems that have nothing to do with them or with the free expression of their identities. The Lemkin Institute reminds readers that one of the first libraries to be burned under the National Socialists in Germany was a library and archive of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, a groundbreaking research organization studying human sexuality and gender. The Nazis, like other genocidal groups, believed that national strength and existential power 
could only be achieved through an imposition of a strict gender binary within the racially pure national community. A fundamentalist gender binary was a key feature of Nazi racial politics and genocide. In the United States, the Republican Party has introduced a barrage of anti-transgender laws and policies in multiple states since 2016. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, there have been 286 anti-transgender bills introduced between January 1, 2021 and October 13, 2022. Most of the anti-trans bills that have been passed and signed into law across the country have to do with the eligibility of trans athletes to participate in school sports. Thankfully, many of the most dangerous bills have not been enacted into law yet, including Kansas Senate Bill 214, which criminalized gender reassignment surgery and hormone replacement therapy for minors, and Missouri House Bill 2086, a bill that would prohibit a person from changing their gender marker on their birth certificate. All these laws seek to create a society that is hostile to the very idea of trans identity and in which it is impossible to live openly and legally as a trans person. It must be said that the reality of transgender identity cannot be challenged. Transgender people have existed throughout history. In many societies, particularly before Western colonial domination, social institutions existed to make room for trans people. Scientific research on sexual development has demonstrated the complexity of biological sex and the biological basis for gender diversity. Furthermore, gender identity is a very private and subjective matter that engages with deeply felt realities and the social constructions that exist in society. It is part of the process of human expression that is protected by universal human rights and the U.S. Constitution, such as the right to life, liberty, and security of person, equal protection of the law, the right to privacy, and the freedom of expression. Like other identities, gender identities outside of the narrow binary are legitimate and protected. The gender-critical movement, though it often claims scientific accuracy, is in fact ignoring the most rigorous and up-to-date science of sex and gender. Scientific research on gender diversity aligns with what we know about biological diversity more generally and challenges the fundamentalist binary concept of sex and gender differentiation. The fundamentalist interpretation of gender and the obsession with the gender binary hurts all people who do not conform to traditional gender stereotypes, not just transgender people, by imposing strict norms on human expression and experience through the use of shame and stigma. Scientific research has shown, in contrast, that supportive parents, schools, and communities, as well as gender-affirming health care, lead to improved mental health and life outcomes for trans people, and therefore also for all the people who love and cherish them. All attempts to further marginalize and indeed to criminalize transgender identities contributes directly to the high level of society violence that already exists against transgender people as well as to the high levels of mental and physical health challenges that exist within the transgender community, including suicide. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention points out that the gender-critical movement is not about protecting women. It is about exacting control over the bodies of marginalized people and thrusting them outside of the community of moral obligation if they fail to conform to the norms of the gender that has been assigned to them by others. In other words, the gender-critical movement seeks to control the deepest aspects of human experience and self-knowledge through genocidal aggressions against an historically marginalized and silenced community that has just begun to flourish and gain acceptance. The gender-critical movement is a totalitarian and genocidal social force that targets not just transgender people, but also all the institutions of democracy that protect individual and collective human rights. While members of the gender-critical movement may argue that they do not seek to kill the physical bodies of transgender people, they do openly seek to eradicate transgender identity from the world. Following a genocidal logic similar to the U.S., Canadian, and Australian boarding schools that sought to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. Once it becomes acceptable for one group of people to be criminalized for expressing their identity, 
then society becomes vulnerable to the genocidal targeting of other groups as well. In fact, anti-trans initiatives are closely tied to assaults on the rights of women, people of color, minority religious communities, and immigrants in the U.S. and elsewhere. The criminalization and harassment of the trans community can serve as a rehearsal for more generalized targeting of unwanted groups within a genocidal ideological structure. There is no shutting the floodgates once states and societies acquiesce to the eradication of a specific people from the earth. And that that part about the Indian boarding schools really was was pretty powerful. Just a few episodes ago, I did an episode on the federal Indian boarding schools and the study put out in the United States related to those schools and how completely they were enmeshed in this part uh, or in this genocidal program in the United States of eradicating the Native American uh, Indians and their cultures. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention expressed solidarity with trans people across the globe. We urge every person around the world to think about the precedents that are being set with the level of stigma, organized hate, and legal control being advocated by voices within the gender-critical movement. We ask people to choose to protect the human rights of human beings who do not fit easily into the simplistic gender binary. We ask people to question what agendas they are serving by supporting anti-trans hate speech and policy initiatives. We encourage everyone to support people in their efforts to live as the person they know that they are. We invite people to be open-minded and open-hearted and to learn about transgender experiences. The real challenges to human life, to safe and secure families, and to healthy communities are historical injustices and structural inequalities, not people attempting to live full lives in their true identities. I hadn't read that fully in its entirety before deciding to put it into this episode and read it for this episode. And wow, is that powerful and and eye-opening and and expanding, mind-expanding, expanding how we can and should think about what we see and hear when we hear and see anti-trans uh, laws being passed, anti-trans language, um, anti-trans actions happening out there, violence against trans folks, and and coupled with the earlier story, um, really shows the the risk of not confronting uh, the anti-trans activities that are out there. Um, and like I started off this episode. This is this is a small community. This is a marginalized community. This is a community that, it, as it's becoming more visible, it is becoming a easy target because it's a small community, and that's where it that's where it starts. That's where fascism starts. They find a community that is more easy to take over to convince other people to be against um to gain power and then as they gain power as that one community is pushed down or pushed back or pushed out otherwise eliminated by the the means they're trying to employ to do so, they can move on to the next community. The the white supremacists have been working hard on certain communities for a very long time and have had waves of success followed by waves of failure and to latch on and find this new threatened community uh, that doesn't have the power um, it becomes a, an, an easy target and it becomes very dangerous for us to let that go unchecked. 
And on the flip side, all of these laws serve little purpose because the the problem of transness has been inflated to serve political purposes. Um, the laws that are getting passed and the laws that are being proposed are going to do a great deal of harm, enormous harm to this small population of folks. But that does harm to us all. When you realize and understand that your success in this world is dependent on the success of others, then you can understand that harms caused to others will impact your ability to be successful because it will impact the ability for your world and your society to be to be positive and to thrive and that will impact your ability to thrive within it putting putting it more simply saving the trans community saves ourselves it saves ourselves by allowing trans folks to thrive and contribute fully to society in whatever ways are fulfilling to them and it uh, allows our society to be better by diminishing the power of the folks driven by fascist ideologies to attack groups uh, to hold groups of folks down so that they can remain or become the dominant group with power in the society that is a society that harms us all Finally, for this episode is a piece written by Justin T. Brown. This is published at NBCNews.com. The trial over Arkansas's ban on gender-affirming care for trans children recently began. As vulnerable children await to hear if their bodily autonomy will be stripped away, we should remember that cisgender children seek gender-affirming care with relatively little social stigma attached. 20 years ago, in rural Maine, I was one of them. When I was going through puberty, my body's hormones were firing in every direction, and I started developing breast tissue, similar to a girl's. The technical term for this condition is gynecomastia, but most of us know it as the dreaded man boobs. Up to 60% of teen boys have asymptomatic gynecomastia according to the National Institutes of Health. Adolescent symptomatic cases like mine are less prevalent, but it affects about 65% of adult men. As a teen boy who identified as a boy, randomly sprouting breasts really, really sucked. I hated my body. I wore a shirt in the pool, dreaded the school locker room, dressed in layers, and walked hunched over to hide my shape. I lived in constant fear of nipple grabbers at school. Teen boys are weird. And being outed as a boob haver. I was uncomfortable and embarrassed 24-7 and had about 0% confidence in myself, all because of the misalignment between how I felt I should look and how I actually looked. When I confided in my conservative dad about what was happening, I was about 15. He saw how much this was holding me back, and we immediately went to a plastic surgeon for a consultation. A quick procedure and a few weeks of wearing an ace bandage later, I was flat-chested and finally had a body that looked like mine. Trans children deserve the same consideration. The next year was the best year of my life up to that point. I felt great. I felt confident. I made a ton of new friends, decided to get in shape. I played a sport. I put gel in my hair. I started dating, partied, all the good stuff. For the first time, I felt and acted like an average teen instead of just barely participating out of aggressive discomfort and fear. I went from a guy who hated being seen to the most seen guy at school in no time. Over the years, I've had medical procedures that saved my body, but my breast reduction saved my mind. 
receiving care that affirmed my perceptions of my gender, drastically changed my life for the better. I can attest that having mind-body alignment feels like a superpower. The care that I received is just one small example of the gender-affirming care that cisgender folks receive regularly. We just call it health care. I got breast tissue reduction surgery, but breast augmentation for cisgender women to conform to a perception of womanhood is even more common. Cisgender people alter their eyes, noses, lips, faces, hairlines, facial hair, body hair, height, and even the nether regions to more closely align with our culture's ideals of the, quote, perfect man or, quote, perfect woman. We frequently change or enhance our bodies hormonally, too. Kids have been dosed with human growth hormones since the 1960s to make them taller, and men looking to achieve a cartoonish level of manliness get testosterone pumped into their veins. Hormone replacement therapy is commonplace for cis women and men looking to maintain or enhance their vitality in ways that align with their gender identities and gender ideals. But I don't see the care that affirms cisgender norms, expectations, and functions, including for children, being questioned to the same extent as transgender care, or, to be honest, by nearly any extent. By contrast, even the most basic of trans care, respecting gender identity and expression, puberty blockers, and hormone therapy, is scrutinized endlessly and demonized to the point of being life-threatening for patients and doctors alike. The double standard is glaring. In a recent viral interview between Jon Stewart and Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge about her state's ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth points to a large part of the problem. Without being able to name a credible source, Rutledge claimed that 98% of youth with gender dysphoria would grow out of it, to which Stewart replied, Wow, that's an incredibly made-up figure. This idea of elected officials stripping away the autonomy of parents and children to make the kinds of medical decisions that would be the best for them is appalling. As Stewart pointed out to Rutledge, the state is not even allowing parents to weigh their options based on the guidelines of the country's top medical organizations. We should think more deeply and compassionately about those seeking health care in the trans community as they suffer mind-body misalignment that many of us can't even imagine. Having a little empathy is a good thing, and for those of us who get to bathe in the privilege of doing whatever the hell we want to our bodies, it's probably even our responsibility. Some folks may disagree that the care I received was gender-affirming, and I'll admit I'm not an expert on health care, cis, trans, or otherwise, but I am an expert on me, what I did, and why I did it. For me, it was straightforward. I'm a dude. I was born a dude. I want to be a dude. And having breasts didn't align with that for me. They needed to go for me to live a fuller life. Some may also argue that societal pressures and expectations influence my choices. And to that, I don't necessarily disagree. Who knows, if breasts on a guy were the pinnacle of manliness in 2002, I might have rocked it. But surgery is a lot faster than turning the Titanic of culture, and I would have missed some of the best years of my life waiting. Here's what I know for sure. Had I been trans and seeking the same surgery, there's a good chance it wouldn't have been as easy as it was for me. 20 years ago in rural Maine, or today. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. From her album, Spotify is Surveillance, here is Evan Greer with The Tyranny of Either Or. For our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening.
hates a bigotry Anything to justify Your projected insecurities Become policies of purity You debate about our rights 